everyone. Thank you for joining us today on the second day of the Untitled Art podcast, live recording from Miami Beach at Untitled Art 11th edition. I am Clara Andrade, the Director of Development and Programming at Untitled Art. As a new initiative this year, we count on programming partners taking over a dedicated podcast day. I am delighted to introduce you to today's programming partner, HerClick. HerClick is a curated online platform for especially commissioned works by women and female identifying artists, founded by entrepreneur Isabella Depchi. Promoting women artists and democratizing the art industry is at the core of their business model with approachable pricing, allowing for a broader collector audience participation. Her click is also committed to supporting the community with proceeds benefiting various nonprofit organizations. As part of the programming collaboration, Her Click has produced a suite of limited edition prints by three of our exhibiting artists and galleries with artist Vera Chavez Barcelos, presented by Selinsky, Larissa de Jesus Negron, presented by Selena's Mountain, and Apollonia Sokol, presented by The Peel. I invite you to explore them on site at the booths and learn more about their platform by visiting their website. We are proud to say that proceeds from this particular series will benefit for freedoms, an art collective founded in 2016 by a coalition of artists, academics, and organizers to promote infinite expansion through art. For Freedoms, we'll also be presenting a special project at this year's edition of Untitled Art with For Freedoms News. And we are thrilled to welcome For Freedoms founder, Hank Willis Thomas, to our first Untitled Art Ambassadors Committee as well. For the dedicated programming day, her click will host a significant lineup of three live recording podcasts titled What Can Art Do? Three Conversations on Speaking to the Unspeakable moderated by the notable art critic and journalist, Linda Jablonski. Please also join us today at 3 p.m. and at 4 p.m. for the other two panels. And with no further ado, I hand over the mic to Linda. Thank you all, and I hope that you enjoy the conversations. To everyone in the room or watching on Instagram or listening to our podcast, welcome. I am Linda Jablonski coming to you live from Miami Beach. And uh, this is What Can Art Do? Three public conversations uh, on the repercussions and the rewards of making and showing art that has a conscience as well as an arresting visual presence. To that end, I'm very pleased to introduce you to these three resplendent women the artist directly to my left here, Zoe Buckman, Genevieve Gagnard, and the curator, Jasmine Wahi. Thank you for being here. Okay, to begin. So when we're talking about kind of undressing people in public just by laying eyes on them, can art, can the experience of an artwork can it, I know it can change people's perceptions. Can it change their behavior, do you think? How people interact with the art. Now, Jasmine, you're a curator, so that's an issue for you. 
is how to present work that might have kind of heavy subject matter and uh, engage the public in it without impose, telling them how to think about it. So I actually don't attempt anymore to shy away from telling people how to think about things um, because my work is now really not about convincing other people who have already made perceptive decisions um, about the artwork or the artist or the thematic subject matter that I'm showing. Um, I no longer see myself as needing or aiming to convince them of the validity of our experiences or our artwork. Um, the shows are very deliberately um, constructed to be what they are and to have very uh, deliberate undertones. Um, and again, if, you know, I've come to a point in my life through the, actually through the experience of uh, an exhibition that I collaborated on, Abortion is Normal, um, in 2020, realizing that the work that I do is, is not for, again, people who can't be convinced or don't want to be convinced or aren't open to that of, of certain things. And it's more about creating community and um, developing a way for other people who are in the communities who may not necessarily realize that there is camaraderie and shared kinship and collective comfort and joy and space for us, the shows I do are for them. Um, call it a, a beacon or a bat signal or whatever you want to, but that's, that's really how I operate um, in, the, in the manner of the, the 90s clothing line and slogan, FUBU, for us, by us. Well, first you have to bring the community to the work. Is this on? Yes. Now, Zoe, at this very moment, uh, I, maybe this is the last day, has brought her work to the public in a rather huge way in New York, <laughs> in Times Square, uh, three minutes before midnight every night for the last month. There, as uh, she has fulfilled grandly the commission to make a video that plays across 20 screens in Times Square, enormous screens with music, and they are images of your work and made for this specific project. What was it like for you to see your work in this? enormous forum and what kind of reception have you had to it? That is how, now this is the general public, no, not the art audience that you're addressing. Uh, and it's so much better than all the advertising that's on that screen, just aesthetically speaking, that it's really striking, but it has a subject. Yeah, I um, I I I don't mean to be a, like a Debbie Downer, but I am increasingly disappointed or disillusioned by the art world. No offense, no offense. So we, I, we operate in our own art world. Yeah, it it makes <laughs> make me exactly, and that's the thing. It makes me love and appreciate. I feel like I have 
these, I don't know, what are those called? Lifesavers? Yeah? Like, there are these people in our community and, and in our industry that, like, I feel like I'm a dog swimming in the sea and then I arrive at them and I'm like, oh, I can rest for a minute on, on you. Thank God for you. Then they get swept away. I have to keep swimming again until I see them again. Um, so I, I really do appreciate that there are people and artists and moments that, that do fill me with hope. In general, I when we're thinking about what can art do, I'm not sure it can do much. There is so much going backwards right now. Sorry. And, and you're like, wish, I feel like we're shouting into a void. We're preaching to the choir often. Um, and then here we are in Art World Week and we're in the mall, the slaughterhouse for artists. We were never supposed to see our work like this. Avert your eyes, artists. Um, so it's hard to wake up and be like, we are making a difference, people. Don't watch the news. Don't look around. We're, we're, we're so making a difference. But then there are opportunities to present work outside that transcends the art world, the art industry, auction sales, all of that shit, gallery walls. Um, and I really relish those opportunities and I'm grateful for them. And the Times Square midnight moment was one of them. And I really didn't, realize until I was actually there experiencing it with like these people that I know and love around me and and seeing the effects that one can have and it did feel the work though it came from a place of trauma was born out of a place of trauma was also very hopeful and I I call it with the music particularly like a victory march and to see that kind of like amplified it was like over 90 screens and it was it felt so big but it people remarked about how they felt like held within it in a way. I don't know. I'm rambling a bit, but... Um, Can you just describe some of the images since we're not seeing it here? Yeah, the, so, so basically I, I wrote a poem about the experience of being left and abandoned after a miscarriage. Ha, lol. And, um, and I then worked with these two musicians... I, when I recited the poem, I was with this, um, this incredible artist, trumpet player from The Roots called Dave Guy. And so he played next to me, um, sounded like a woman crying. It was so beautiful. And we just did one take. And then Homer, who's this incredible drummer, um, he layered these like very sort of mournful, soulful drum beats on top. So we had this one audio piece and that at one point had visuals these sort of kaleidoscopic moments of a red cluster of boxing gloves with like these red chunks of fabric like very giving miscarriage abortion um and then for the Times square midnight moment we decided to take away the poetry and really build on with the music more um they called them like wu-tang synths i was like yeah wu-tang synths and then they layered the um the trumpets and the um I used a different glove cluster for the visuals and it was more it was it was more evocative of or speaking to resilience and resistance and strength as the antidote to like the fuckery things that we go through with our so, bodies. So there were boxing gloves, images yeah. of boxing gloves yeah. and also and chains and fabric and Yeah, there were kind of embroideries and what looked like fractal florals. Yes. Yeah all combining so 
they're they're kind of jarring together, but they were actually there was something pink about them. <laughs> you know, yeah. that was yeah, <laughs> that was so sort of pretty and pink. Yeah, I've, I've always I think one of the the threads, pun intended, throughout my work has always been this intersection of the masculine and the feminine. Um, it's something that I've always been really drawn to, and particularly when creating works about like femme-bodied experiences I want to draw you close but I also want to speak about like my experience which is also like very masculine in a way I'm very drawn to that and that is a big part of my work mm -hmm. yeah uh, Genevieve uh when we, uh, we spoke uh on the phone before this uh, you, you were talking a lot about, and what you was, were speaking to earlier today, about what people presume and uh, what uh, they perceive. The difference between presumption and <laughs> what they take for perception is often about assumption, in fact, uh, which you can uh, address in your work. Would you say, now Zoe was talking about, you know, making finding strength and resilience in the aftermath of a trauma is your work driven by what upsets you or just what you care most about in your own life it's not really about what's upsetting me per se I'm kind of in the body I'm in I'm in the experiences that come towards me and that I embrace and I'm responding. I'm trying to be part of the conversation, but I'm also trying to reflect back some of the things that folks often don't want to linger with. And I'll use color pattern palettes that are kind of overly feminine, if you will, to kind of assuming that some most folks think that those things aren't going to hit you with a heavier message or... Um, you know, that it's safe. But then when you get closer and you really start to unpack the meaning of those symbols, you're, you're kind of in this, oh, oh shit, like, I don't know what to do now. I have to actually check in with myself and see what that's about. Yet in the environments I create, hopefully the person still feels safe enough to kind of, you know, take those questions and, um, know that it's something that they can't figure out in one moment at a glance of the work. You know, it's, it's kind of, these things have to seep in over time. Good point. Over time. Now I have to say that the first time I saw your work was at an art fair, <laughs> which was not, it is not my experience to see something that stops me cold at an art fair and that I need to spend time with because everyone's rushing around even in galleries and you, you know, you either connect immediately or you don't. And of course you can, I feel no one can connect with an artwork immediately if you're really going to understand what's going on there or what it is about that image or object that is holding your attention. So it was partly the outward image, the costume. You were in this, you know, amazing big dress with big hair, but you were in a very particular environment. 
uh, and uh, I mean, you make photographs, but you and collages, but there is also an environment involved both within the photograph and in the presentation of the art. Uh, and so each one of those things, as you say, has a meaning. It's not there random. It's not there because it looks good or because it's an object that you like or collect, you know. Uh, but you must have an enormous collection of clothing <laughs> and objects that you use. You also make things, you know, that aren't necessarily bought. I, there is at this art fair at Art Basel, not this art fair, at Art Basel at Miami, uh, there are three collages where you use the um, uh, Aunt Jemima salt and pepper shakers that used to be quite common, uh, and except they are, they're headless in your case, in that photograph, and surrounded by cutouts, images of women's faces, black women's faces and some lace and wallpaper. There's actually a lot in each piece, I assume, is part of, uh, you know, it's another rabbit hole to go down while you're looking at this work. It's something to live with and to hold in your mind. So why, the, the, the head has been replaced by a vase of blooming flowers uh, so, and this is a really troubling object in our culture. It, when I was a child, they were everywhere. And even as a child, I thought it was, well, I was a child, so I thought it was cute, but I thought there was something wrong with it too. Uh, and, uh, it, it's, you know, you don't see them anymore. You don't see the lanterns of the black boy, the black jockeys holding the lanterns. Uh, except that artists have used them li like yourself. So why that object? Don't be fooled. They're still around. Oh, yeah. You know, this is a symbol, you know, of the salt and pepper mammy. Um, and, and they're still being manufactured. Exactly. <laughs> really? Here in America? China. I'll, I'll let Genevieve go, go into it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't really want to go into all that, but yeah. I can explain <laughs> what my work is yeah. trying to speak to. Um, and again, those pieces are kind of part of a larger body of work, but, um, I usually, what I'm using the leftover image of a sculpture that I create where I'm taking a Royal Dalton figurine and the salt and pepper mammy, removing the head from each, putting the mammy on the body of the Royal Dalton to, and then she's seamlessly put back together to kind of take her out of that story of servitude and that she she actually the black woman needs to be uh you know treated with care and protected and so i then have all of these headless mammy in my studio and that image to kind of elevate it and bring strength to it i wanted to basically say that through all the struggles that black folks, black women have endured, continue to endure, like we're still blooming these, you know, amazing histories and culture and um, art and all of the things. So it's, it's that thing that for you by you kind of thing, like if you don't get it, it's not for you maybe, you know, or you need to look within yourself and figure out 
where you fit in the conversation. So one thing art can do is reconstitute or re uh, or address an identity to change what it represents because most art is representative of something and uh, it's also a metaphor for something and uh, that is good art and uh, it's uh, it you know, I don't really know what it is about that image that also stopped me in my tracks. And then I had to look closer because there's so many details uh, that you don't see actually in a reproduction. Um, I, yeah. I think one, one thing that just struck me when you were speaking and thinking about the parallels between our work is that I, I think it's really important that artists are given the permission or authentically when when creating that like, I think what I'm trying to say is that there's often a, an expectation or, or a thirst for us to make work where we're somehow like lamenting about our experiences, our community, our body, our history, our ancestors, you know, and, and sometimes we are making work where we are like fucking angry or we're in pain and we want to show that and we want to speak to that and other people respond to it that's their business. We're not making it for them. People might respond to it and be like, I feel seen. And you're like, beautiful, blessed. But I'm going to keep going authentically myself. And my next series or my next piece or, or my next few series or whatever might be more joyful um, or might be using beauty in a different way or exploring something that has nothing to do with my reality or my identity. And I, I ju it just struck me when, when you were speaking that like, I just think it's really important that we are allowed, despite what they out there might want from us, that we are allowed to do what is within. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's very, it is empowering what Genevieve is doing, what you're doing. And it's striking to me that you are addressing, Zoe, in large part, violence to women's bodies. But you treat them with distinct tenderness even the violators are treated with a certain tenderness that, but not compassion the compassion is for the woman and but it's a very that's a tightrope it's a very fine line you're dancing on and uh, it takes uh, I don't know what it takes to be able to grapple with it yeah you know. I can, I can say I'm not, what I've realized recently is that I'm not trying to do anything. Like I'm not, I'm actually not, I've never tried to say anything. Um, I, it's important to me that my work is well made and that it's authentic. Those are like the two most important things to me. And um, it just so happens that people have felt that it is speaking to this and something that they have a touch point to or, or about and speaking about it in a nuanced way and I'm so grateful for everybody's interpretation of my work but it's I've never like been driven you, by a, you a like made, a goal right you haven't yeah. made for the market or for an expectation I actually I don't think 
I mean, either of you do. I mean, this is, I've followed your work for years and years, and this is the first time we're on a, on a panel together, and I feel so honored to be like a fangirl yeah, between, like, or next to the two of you. But, you know, for both of you, I think a, a thing that happens from your work is when I first saw your work, I felt a sense of great, I hate using the word empowerment because it's so so overused, like, badassery. Like, it it felt fucking good to be like, yeah, I'm I'm here. Like, I'm fucking out here. And that, it is what it is. Um, and that has been, I think, a through line in, in your work, at least for me and my interpretation, you know, speaking of interpretations, um, there's a, an unapologeticness about your work that is just so refreshing and um, I think so desperately needed. And then Zoe, I was with you at the, the opening or the, the celebration of Midnight Moment where you recited the poem. And, you know, although it did come, you know, the origin of the work came from a dark place or a, or a place of trauma, I don't think that trauma and joy exist in mutually exclusive spaces, right? Yeah, like 100%. we can exist in multiples. We are all multiples. Um, and that, what your work in that moment did was, it was like a cocoon. It enveloped all of us, you know, all of us who are like family of yours, but even the, like, however many thousands of people were captivated in that moment three, three moments, um, surrounded by softness that was molded to what are otherwise hard objects. Mm -hmm. And that sort of subversion or that flip, I think in that moment was transgressive and transformative. You know, it, it enveloped us. I think honestly, the truth is, is that at least for me and my experience, I, it's, it's a complicated one, and you touched on it earlier. The multitudes and the complexity of trauma, like, I can't even sit here and say that I don't have gratitude for the people who have wronged me, hurt me, physically abused me, and taken my power away from me. Like, because I'm not a total idiot, I am an idiot, but because I'm not a total idiot, I have been in relationship with people who have, like, fucked me over to to like next levels but also like given me and fed me so much otherwise obviously I would never have been there in the first place right and that's a really like that's a, a really nuanced and complicated place to be in and and to recognize within myself and within my work too is that when I am speaking about um experiences again of like having one's power taken away it's not even as simple as all that like I can't even be like, he's a fucking asshole. Yeah, he's a fucking asshole. Also, like, did and said some beautiful and great things and, like, helped me in many ways and fed me in many ways. And I, I stand here very grateful for, for the majority of the experiences that I've had, the good and the bad. So, yeah. Yes, when, uh, when you live through something, it gives your life meaning it didn't have before. You're just surviving. And then... Uh, taking possession of it and turning it into what you want. So and that's actually trying to make some money from it too. Well. <laughs> Best revenge is your papers. <laughs> Shoes. Oh God. Yes. Uh, 
so one thing art can do, that's one thing art can do, and another thing is that it can create artists and curators who experience it and something happens, you know, that draws you to art. Now, I think in the case of artists, you can't help it. I couldn't help it be a writer. I mean, I, I, I liked it and that's what I chose to do. But still, early museum experiences or talking to artists, that affected me deeply. I didn't start out in the art world. I had a few other careers first, but this was turned out to be home. What was the art that brought you really into making art as a, as a, as a life? Me? Yes, Genevieve. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we spoke about this when we chatted and I, I couldn't tell you one specific piece. I can just kind of see myself as a young girl um, in my bedroom, cutting up magazines and putting them on the wall. My, my earliest collage, if you will, <laughs> or installation, you know angsty teen art um but and I, you, it didn't choose like i didn't choose it it kind of just felt like right exactly it just came out of me and the right people have come in my path to like kind of direct me to like have clarity and what my you know direction and what my voice could do but but the way you present it the environments use the use of photography or uh sewing uh uh, there are lots of artists who came before you uh, that kind of opened the doors for an audience to walk through and say, yes, uh, the, the, it, it's art, you know. But, I mean, most great artists, when you walk in and you don't know what the hell you're looking at, and my that's my <laughs> definition of art, is when you can't explain it any other way, it must be art. And it's... Uh, the best I've come up with so far. And, uh, but uh, there were other women who used themselves as uh, objects in a way uh, and subject uh, to present their art. To, who, uh, in, Starting in the 70s, lots of women turned to photography since the guys seemed to have the painting sewed up. Uh, and then performance... And your work is very performative, I think. It certainly triggers other uh, actions and responses. Would you say that's true? I don't know if I'll say all of that <laughs> you said was true or my opinions, but um, an artist that early on resonated with me, I think you are talking about... you. I think you think that I'm going to say Cindy Sherman, but mm -hmm. I'm... <laughs> I'm uh, in my photography practice, it was Diane Arbus who really, A, I, I kind of just was drawn to the way she was drawn to people that didn't fit inside a box. And also I felt like I would have been maybe one of her subjects if, you really? know, if our paths had crossed. Um, and yeah, that's kind of, she's kind of always stayed with me. And just observing the environments of the people that, you know, when she would go home with folks and you just see all of the things that people surround themselves with. And those are clues 
to better understand what people feel comfort, like get comfort from by what they provide around or what they um, put around their homes. I, I actually would have said Carrie Mae Weems and not Cindy Sherman. <laughs> we, we talked about Cindy on the phone, that's why. Yeah, I know. Other, I've heard other people mention her in regards to your work, and I don't think it's the same at all. I mean, they're, they exist in the same universe. What about you, uh, Jasmine? What have been your guide rails through the art world? So I think for many or for a lot of curators who I know, um, we also, I think, feel the compulsion um, The even if you don't necessarily have language. Like, I didn't know what a curator was until I was maybe an undergrad um, or maybe in high school. But um, we are feel that we are in the service of artists, that we're lovers of art, and we, are, we want to make shows. There's just, like, something uh, about it that's thrilling. Even today, uh, you know... I would say 20 years, but my mom would probably say 36 years. Um, it's still exciting for me. And I grew up in a city with free museums. Um, and that was because they were free. That was the place to be. Um, and so I knew, I think, really from the time I was in kindergarten that I wanted to be making exhibitions. Um, I think my first exhibition was on our front porch. It was called the... Smithsonian Sackler Gallery at Declaration Lane and I took all of my parents objects out of like the china cabinet and invited all the neighbors over to see it like what a fucking weirdo kid um didn't have a lot of friends growing up surprise um but the thing I think that drove me into this sort of particular type of space within contemporary art was looking in those museums in the 90s the most I would see of myself um, or other folks of color was in either in spaces of subservience or antiquities. And like, surprise guys, I'm not a seventh century Buddha. I know it's crazy. Um, there was no reflection of, of us. Um, and so I kind of, and even in, in early art history, although I credit my high school art history teacher with the person who really like dynamically changed my life from wanting to be an artist to wanting to be a curator. Um, everything we learned was Western art history, except for when it was like, it, then it wasn't even called indigenous art. It was like native art, prehistoric art, and like other, whatever. Um, it was... I guess became sort of a prompt to a selfish prompt to like find myself or amplify myself. And since then that has been sort of the mission. But as, as far as being a curator, I think it was from inception. That's great. Okay. One last question, Zoe, I'll put it to you. If I were to say to you, Zoe Buckman, do your worst, what would that be? What I what came to mind, I po couldn't possibly share. I'm just gonna that in there is open to your interpretation. <laughs> okay, thank you all for being here today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks to her clique for sponsoring thank you. us. I really, this was really interesting and exciting, and I love it when you talk among yourselves, and. 
having an opportunity to speak to the world at the same time is pretty great because I think what you do and what you said is very important. Uh, it certainly uh, changed how I thought about art, not just your art, but a lot of art, and most of all, how I see it, because uh, the presentation is so critical to the experience. Uh, please, we'll be back here this afternoon at 3 p.m. with uh, Dred Scott, the artist Dred Scott, and the Whitney Museum curator, Jekyll Hockley. And then at uh, 4 o'clock, um, we'll have uh, the Four Freedoms co-founder, Hank Willis Thomas, with the um, Miami-based uh, video artist, Dara Friedman, and that will address public art and its legacy and, you know, what is a monument exactly. This has been a monumental conversation. I'm glad to put the three of you together for the first time. And uh, thanks to everybody. Have a good lunch. <laughs> <laughs>